16 of Romans, chapter number 1. As Derek read just a few moments ago, a verse or two verses that we are probably familiar with. But we see the heart of the Apostle Paul in these verses. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Not ashamed of the gospel. There are things that we are ashamed of. Sometimes it's an old car. We're afraid to be seen in public with the old clunker. Maybe it's some old clothes. I know that there was a particular flannel shirt that my dad would wear that was kind of beaten up and ragged, had holes in it. And he would wear it around the house for doing little odd jobs around the house or working on the car. And my mom would warn him, don't you dare wear that in public. <laughs> maybe you have something like that, or maybe there's someone you don't ever want to be seen with. It's interesting when our kids get to be about 13, 14, 15, you walk into the store and sometimes all of a sudden they kind of lag behind or they disappear. It's like, what, what happened? They're, maybe they're afraid to be seen with their parents in public. I don't know. But there are things that we are ashamed of. We don't want to be seen with, don't want to be identified with. But we should never, ever be ashamed of the gospel. But sadly, too many times we are. Sadly, too many times we're afraid to speak up or speak out or declare the truth. There are times and places, of course, where uh, we may not be able to speak as boldly or as plainly. But we should never, ever be ashamed of the gospel. I know there are workplace restrictions. I know there are sometimes things that you can and cannot do in certain places. And I, not, I personally am not a big fan of leaving tracks on the toilet paper dispenser in the stall. But I've been in places like that where there's tracks on the... I don't know if that's the best use of a tract, but I understand the purpose. And Maybe you've seen tracks on uh, grocery, grocery store shelves and, and places like that. But we should never be ashamed of the gospel, particularly when we are asked to give a reason of the hope that lies within us, particularly when people notice our testimony and they come to us and they just see the difference that Christ has made in our lives. And it doesn't take long, does it, when we try to live for the Lord and we live a life that by his grace pleases him. It's amazing how people will just come to us and they'll ask us certain questions, they'll notice certain things, and they'll even pick up on the fact that we're a religious person, maybe, or that you go to church. And uh, it's an opportunity for us to be able to declare uh, the truth of the gospel and how Christ changed our lives. And we are not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's think about Paul's testimony for a few minutes here. Notice in verse 14, he says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Paul felt as a debtor. A debtor in what regard? A debtor in the sense that he had this burden and this responsibility and this obligation from God to declare the gospel to the Greeks. In a general sense, that would refer to the Gentiles. But the Greeks were the culture along with the Roman culture, the Greeks would often be very 
They would prioritize intelligence, education, intellect, knowledge, philosophy. And if a person acclimated themselves to the Greek culture, they would be considered more favorable in the eyes of the Greeks. The barbarians would be basically anybody who did not take on the Greek culture and did not appreciate the intellect, the intelligence, and the philosophy of the Greeks. What is Paul saying? He is saying that he is going to take the gospel to the Greeks who consider them wise and educated, consider themselves really very proud of their great thoughts and their philosophy. They desire knowledge. They liked reason. He said, I'm going to, with the gospel, try to reach them. I'm a debtor to them to give them the truths, to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the barbarian would basically be anybody who wasn't a Greek, who wasn't the one who appreciated the Greeks and their intellect and their knowledge. And he's saying, I'm a debtor to the barbarians as well. And we think of barbarians in a, in a rougher, maybe, uh, definition. And sure, there were those types of people who were uh, a little backwards, maybe uh, not as uh, civilized, but barbarians would probably be even us in the Roman, Greco-Roman culture. We would not be necessarily the, the ones who assimilated the Greek culture and maybe appreciated and had all the education and all the intellect and philosophies. I'm not saying that you're unintellectual or dumb people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you aren't smart people. You are. But we would probably be considered in the barbarian, but at least as a Gentile. And Paul is saying he has a debt from God. There's a responsibility that he has, a great burden that he has to give the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to the barbarians, and to the wise as well as to the unwise. The wise would be the ones who would be considered the Greeks. The Greeks consider themselves wise. The barbarians would be considered the ones who were unwise. Paul is saying, I'm going to reach everyone with the gospel. That's essentially what he is saying. I am not going to be showing favors. I am not going to say, well, you're uneducated. I'm not going to give you the gospel. Or you're educated. I'm not going to give you the gospel. No, Paul is saying I'm a debtor, really, in a sense, to everyone who is unsaved, to share the gospel, to look for an opportunity to declare the truth, the saving truth of faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I am ready, verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. We know that Paul would eventually return to Rome, and he would go there on a prison ship, and he would go there as a prisoner of Rome, and eventually he would be beheaded, according to church history, we know that Paul would eventually die as a martyr. And he was ready. He was eager. He was greatly desiring with a zeal from the Lord to preach the gospel, to even go into the very heart of the Roman Empire and to preach the gospel, even if that meant that he would go there as a prisoner. And then he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he goes on to say at the end of verse 16, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So what would tempt us to be ashamed of the gospel? Here's a few reasons that come to mind, not an exhaustive list, but some things that would maybe cause us, like Paul and the, other believe, and the believers of the first century, what would be the cause of the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, first of all, 
the gospel was associated with Jesus, who was rejected by most Jews. Obviously, there was a remnant, and there is a remnant to this day, and by a pagan Roman culture. Jesus had been largely rejected by his own people. He came into his own, but his own received him not. We, we know that the Roman culture was pagan, adulterous, full of all kinds of licentiousness and immorality. That licentiousness and immorality was what ultimately undermined the Roman Empire and its culture and basically led to the Roman Empire collapsing because of the sexual sins that were so prevalent in the Roman Empire. But there were many who rejected Jesus, rejected Christ, outright rejected the gospel. There were temptations in the first century, especially when there was persecution, that it could be easy for a Christian to be ashamed of the gospel. Not too different from our culture today, where there is a lot of rejection of Christ, where there is a world out there who mocks and makes fun of Christians and biblical values and biblical principles. We think of the fact that not that long before Paul wrote this letter, Christ had been crucified, which was a cruel form of executing a criminal. We know Christ was sinless. He was not a criminal, but he was executed as if he were some sort of common criminal in a very cruel and savage way, being crucified on the cross publicly with a violent, bloody death. There was denial and deceit regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ that blinded many to the truth. There were many in that day, as there is today, who reject the resurrection. The deceit that went along with that and the denial of the resurrection of Christ. Those were accusations. Those were obstacles. Those were, for early believers and even to us today, can be temptations for us to be ashamed of the gospel. You believe in a a Savior who rose again, who rose from the dead? Yes, we do. We're going to celebrate that like we do every Sunday. We're going to celebrate that in a special way on Easter Sunday. We're not to be ashamed of those truths. There was persecution of Christians. There was misrepresentation of Christ, misrepresentation of Christians and their teachings and their lifestyle. As we are seeing more and more in America today and around the world, the false accusations, the misrepresentations, the way in which Christianity is blamed for things that are clearly not Christianity's fault, the denial of the sinfulness of man and the culture of death that we see in our culture today and society and even more laws that are trying to be passed. I understand that it's not just in Indiana, but there are other states considering medical assistance in dying, assisted suicide laws. In so many ways in which there is a rejection of the truth and the persecution that comes with it. The Jews were considered a small and despised nation under Roman authority. The, the Romans looked at the Jews. Again, do we not see the assault upon the Jews today, upon Israel? Especially since October 7th of last year. The, the horrific things that are said, the outright lies and the propaganda, the protests on college campuses and, and, and around different cities in support of terrorist organizations. And the thought now of a two-state two solution, so you can go into a country 
savagely murder its people and then you get a two-state solution? You get a, a state out of that? That's wrong. Can I just come right out and say that is not the answer, especially when what terrorist organization are you going to negotiate with to get a, a, another nation, to get a, a, a second state? I'm going to get carried away if I don't stop. But there already is a Palestinian state. In, in, we can go on and on, but I'm not going to go any further with that. So many lies, so many deceptions, and today we see it. But back in Roman culture, back under the Roman Empire, the Jews were despised, and they were looked at as a, a nation that uh, was not worth much time or effort. The Romans despised them, and the Jews lived under the heavy hand of Roman authority. Roman culture looked down on believers for the brotherly love that they shared as brothers and sisters in Christ. They looked down on that. Roman culture was based on pride and being strong and lording over and authority and brashness and boldness and conquering, loving one another, having a familial phileo and agape love for one another, charitable actions toward all classes of people. The Romans saw themselves as high and lifted up. The Greeks saw themselves in their pride and their knowledge. There was all kinds of different associations and the way people were regarded among different cultures and ethnic classes. And if you were one of the conquered nations, you were held as a second-class citizen or a bondservant or a slave or whatever the degree was. We talked this morning about in Philippi, they were a Roman colony. There was Roman citizenship. If you were a Roman citizen... There was the natural-born citizen, and then there were some who had to pay a great price to become a Roman citizen. And that was even uh, brought up with the Apostle Paul in his trip to Rome, where there was a, uh, a soldier who had bought his citizenship. He had worked for it, and then he was able to pay the price to become a Roman citizen. Paul was a natural-born Roman citizen, and that brought great privilege. The Romans thumbed their noses, looked down upon other cultures. They were the mighty ones. But believers were different. They loved one another in a unique way. They brought charitable deeds. They acted upon with love for each other in a way that the Romans looked at as peculiar and downright just silly in their minds why would you love someone that way it's about climbing on top of one another and pushing the other one down so that you can get to where you deserve is that not an attitude in our culture today get out of my way i'm on my way to the top i'm going to get mine it belongs to me and you need to get out of the way while i try to get there that prideful attitude that is not to be the attitude of the christian the romans despise that so here we see just a, a few reasons why there would be a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, some of which even overlap and have application to us today. But in spite of all those temptations, in spite of some of the fears that we may have about standing up for Christ and declaring the truth and living for the Lord, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. 
going to look quickly at some reasons why today. Some reasons why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. First of all, the origin of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the good news. We can go to 1 Corinthians 15, where it is very clearly, plain, plainly, very clearly and plainly stated in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in a general sense, the gospel is the entire Bible. We think of the good news in the specific plan of salvation, and yes, that is good news. Of course it is. But the good news includes the entire revelation of God, his written word, the Bible. The Bible is good news, and the Bible declares Jesus Christ, who is the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word of God is good news. Paul called this gospel the gospel of God. We can go down in understanding and realizing what this word gospel means. It's the word from which we get evangelist or evangelization or evangelizing, evangelion. Specifically, yes, it refers to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the good news is that it is an antidote for the bad news. And what's the bad news? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And for us to receive the good news, we must get the bad news first. We must get the bad news first. And sadly, too many so-called churches or religious groups, too many so-called preachers, minimize the bad news and minimize the sinfulness of man. And sadly, there are too many churches, too many preachers who are ashamed of the gospel while standing behind a pulpit and afraid to declare the hard truths about the sinfulness of man and calling out what sin really is and who we are before a holy God. But if we don't get the bad news, we won't receive the good news. But the good news is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the antidote for the bad news. And in general, again, the entire Bible, the completed revelation of God, his written word, Genesis through Revelation, the entire word of God, the Bible, is good news. We think about what went on in Paul's life that could have possibly caused him to be ashamed of the gospel. To kind of tone down the message a little bit. To, to maybe change his strategy so that he wouldn't be so offensive. I mean, think about it. Imprisoned in Philippi. Chased out of Thessalonica. Smuggled out of Berea. Mocked in Athens. Regarded as a fool in Corinth. Yet Paul wasn't ashamed. He gets imprisoned and he goes on. And he continues to declare the same message, follows the same strategy, declares the truth boldly in Thessalonica. He gets ch chased out of Thessalonica. And where does he go? He goes to Berea. And there he was smuggled out because there were people trying to kill him. So what does he do? Does he decide, hmm, I need to uh, soften this message a little bit. I need to have the diet gospel, gospel light, the low calorie version. Is that what he does? No. He continues to go full force, full barrel, 
with the same strategy, going in and evangelizing with the same hard truths, the good news that had the bad news, yes, but the good news. And he goes to Athens and gets mocked. And even at Corinth, he was regarded as a fool. And we know 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to this world. And what I'm doing tonight and what we are doing here by coming to church is considered by the unsaved, by the world, as foolish, moronic. But we know that the preaching of the cross, though it may be foolishness to the world, it is the wisdom and the power of God. We must not be ashamed of the gospel because of its origin. We didn't even finish all of Paul's, all that happened to Paul. We, I skipped over Acts 14 where he was stoned even in Galatia. Yet he continued boldly with the gospel. We see also not just the origin of the gospel, but the operation of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, verse 16, unto salvation. Power here is the word dynamos that we get our word dynamite from. I don't know if any of you have watched. I've not seen a building imploded in person. I remember when the old Hoosier Dome that became the RCA Dome was imploded to make way for Lucas Oil Stadium. And they were advertising if you wanted to come watch, you could stand somewhere around downtown Indianapolis and watch as the RCA Dome was imploded. I didn't get the privilege of going to watch it, but I watched video later. Maybe you've watched videos of the implosion of a building. It's fascinating how they can put the dynamite in certain places they can put those explosives in just the right places so that the building falls in upon itself instead of out onto the surrounding buildings or whatever is, is nearby. We think of dynamite as a very powerful explosive for destroying things, for bringing buildings down. But we get this word, our word dynamite, from this Greek word dynamos, the power, the power of God. It's foolish to some, as we just talked about, but it refers to the omnipotent power of God. The power of God unto salvation. Only God can save a sinner. Only God can take a wretched sinner and make him a saint. We think of, with the power of God, we think of God's power, his omnipotent power to overcome man's sinful nature and to give him eternal life. There is no other power on earth. There is no man-made power that can justify us, that can save us from our sin. Only God can do that. The power of God unto salvation. We know that Rome was a cesspool of iniquity. Paul and those early believers, they lived in a wicked, pagan, idolatrous, immoral culture. How could they possibly overcome that? We look at what's going on in our culture. We are seeing a wickedness in America that is being tolerated and celebrated and promoted and even decreed by the laws of the land that are blasphemy against God. How do we possibly overcome 
can't do it by our own strength. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual. We have, thankfully, in a constitutional democratic republic, the privilege to write our senators and to call our representatives and to cast a vote. They didn't have that in Roman first century Roman culture. There was no vote to cast. They were in a dictatorship with an emperor who would declare himself to be God. How could they possibly overcome the wickedness of first century Roman society? Only through the grace of God, the power of God that brings salvation. He was burdened to preach this gospel in verse 15. I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. We can look at our own lives. We can look at the lives of many who have been saved out of the bondages of sin. I'm thankful I got saved at a young age. I know what God saved me from. I never want to look down upon or regret having been saved at a young age. Some of you got saved later in life. We know many who have been saved out of some very wicked lifestyles. Only God could change a person. Only God could take someone from the bondage of those horrible sins and make them a saint in Christ Jesus. Sanctify them, set them apart in Christ Jesus. Only God could do that. And Paul believed that. Paul believed he had seen it in himself, who was a good guy, but he saw himself as a wretched sinner. Even in his zeal, in his goodness, what was he doing? He was persecuting Christians. He was there when Stephen was being stoned and the robes, their coats were being laid at his feet. He was going to Damascus to drag Christians off to prison and maybe have them killed. He saw even with his goodness that he was a wicked sinner that only God could change and God completely changed his life. He did a complete 180. And so Paul was burdened with that message. If God could save him, a zealous reprobate sinner who was blaspheming God's name, though he thought he was doing good deeds. He said, if God could save him, then he must declare this message to others because God wants to save anyone and everyone who will believe, who will repent of their sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that was a burden on Paul's heart. He was ready, he was eager to preach the gospel. And I think that should be the case for all of us. I know that we all are guilty of being ashamed at times and not sharing the gospel like we should and evangelizing like we should. But may we have a burden like Paul. And not everyone has a teaching or preaching ministry. I realize that. But there might be times where we have a preaching or teaching ministry, where we have a class or a group. But all of us, whether it be parents or grandparents, I would imagine we have some preaching or teaching ministry in our home with our families, with the groups that God puts in our, in our hearing, in our, in our influence. And it's not always behind a podium or a pulpit. But we have this burden. We must have this burden as ambassadors for Christ to take the ministry of reconciliation, to publish, to proclaim, to herald the gospel. 
like Paul had that burden. So we see the origin of the gospel, the operation of the gospel, and then we see the outcome of the gospel. The word salvation, the word for salvation, is used five times in Romans, eight times more in verb form. It means deliverance. It means rescue. What does that imply? What does deliverance or rescue mean? That we as sinners are in a very desperate state, in a very hopeless, helpless state. We need deliverance. We need to be rescued from our sin. Only God can do that. Salvation is not reformation. It is not education. It is not religion. The external practice of one's faith or the attempt by man to reach God. We are not saved by reformation, by education, or by religion, religious exercises. But rather, salvation is the lost man's only hope. It's salvation of the Lord. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. In John chapter 1, we know this verse probably well, but in John chapter number 1, we know that Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation is of God. It is of the Lord. It is deliverance. And it is one of the major themes throughout this book. And Paul is really only getting started in Romans 1 in verses 16 and 17. But we have to be reminded, the sobering reminder, that where, where and when salvation is not proclaimed, people will perish. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's a burden that we must have for the lost. Think about what Christ does for us. Think about, for a few minutes here, what salvation brings. Salvation finds the lost and shows them the only way. Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation delivers us, delivers an unsaved person as they repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone. They are delivered from the wrath of God. We deserve God's wrath, which includes an eternity in the lake of fire. But salvation delivers us from the wrath of God, from willful spiritual ignorance, from evil self-indulgence, and from the darkness of false religion. Hallelujah for salvation from the Lord. He rescues us from the penalty of sin, eternal punishment, and eternal separation from God in a place called hell, in the lake of fire. So what does it mean to believe? It means to trust, to rely on, to place our faith in, and it refers to an ongoing condition. To everyone that believeth, that is believing, that continues to believe. That's literally what the word in verse 16 is referring to. We don't place our faith one time and then we quit having faith. We talked about this in Philippians 1 and verse 6 this morning. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
one of the things that really helped me in junior high as I was struggling and, and having some doubts and was really uh, wanting assurance having been saved at a young age and now after a week at camp and having heard some good preaching and I was coming home and struggling with some uh, doubts. One of the things that really helped me was understanding that I, my faith right now at that age and to this day right now as I stand here, my faith continues to be in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That I am an unworthy, wicked, wretched sinner and I called upon him and whosoever shall call upon him shall be saved. With the heart man believeth and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That Those truths were what I laid hold of in junior high as I was struggling, not knowing that the very next year I'd begin to feel the impression of the call to preach. And then throughout high school and into Bible college. I just can't help but wonder sometimes if that assurance that I received in junior high was a way in which God was not only confirming, yes, his salvation that I received when I was younger, but also it was preparing my heart for the call of God on my life that very next year. I think of those times where we struggle with doubt and discouragement, and where do we have to come back to? Our faith in God. It's the object of our faith. It's not all the right words, not if we can muster up enough strength in ourselves, pull up our bootstraps. No, our faith is only as strong as the object of our faith. And if our faith and trust is in God, through his son Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, having repented of our sins, our faith then in God is who saves us. And it's his salvation. It's he who does the justifying. It's Christ who did the propitiation. It is God who does the sanctifying. It is of the Lord. And that belief is a faith and a rest in to this day constantly throughout our lives and into eternity it is a faith and a confidence I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day so as we come to our last point tonight the outreach of the gospel we've seen the origin of the gospel the operation of the gospel and the outcome of the gospel and we conclude with the outreach of the gospel to the Jew first. It doesn't mean that the Jews were somehow more important as human beings. We're all made in the image of God with dignity. But were, not, were the Jews not given certain privileges? Were they not given certain responsibilities with those privileges? We can think of the fact that Israel was given the law. Christ was born and lived as a Jew. The Messiah came out of the line of David, and his royal line is through David and the tribe of Judah. Jesus' first ministry was to the Jews, as was Paul's. So the gospel went to the Jew first, in the sense that they received the law. It was their responsibility then to take the gospel and declare it to the world. But by and large, the Jewish nation, Israel, rejected Christ. But still, Paul in his ministry and Jesus in his earthly ministry would go to the Jew first. And upon the Jews not receiving the gospel, they would move then to the Gentiles. And we see that pattern in Paul's ministry, beginning at a synagogue and reaching the Jews in the city. We saw that with Philippi this morning where they didn't have a synagogue. So they went down by the river 
And then that ministry went from the Jews and then to the Gentiles, as Philippi was a Roman colony made up of mostly Gentiles. We see that pattern even in Jesus' ministry and how there was always a place for the Gentile in God's plan of salvation, in God's redemption plan. But we have a responsibility to take the gospel to the Jews. We are supporting Shalom Ministries as part of our ministry to the Jewish people. But maybe God gives us opportunities in other ways besides our support of Shalom Ministries to be able to reach the Jews with the gospel. We see God's love and attention that he has always given the Jews. Think about it today. Think about today. The Jewish nation would not even exist. Israel would not even exist if it weren't for God's special favor and protection. The animosity, the hatred, the vitriol, the fact that they are surrounded by some 50 Arab nations, many of whom are Muslim, who some are run basically by terrorist organizations. They're not even really states or nations, but they're run by terrorist organizations that have in their charter that the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, Jews should not even exist. Fifty nations surrounding them, basically all with some measure of hatred for the Jews. Entire countries like Iran that consider Israel as a nation that should not exist in any nation like ours that supports them as the great Satan. How could they possibly exist? It's a miracle of God. It's because of his special favor and protection. But we conclude this, this evening as we come to the end of this verse again, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God asks, God commands, if I could even say it that way, God commands all men. Jesus said, that God commands all men everywhere to repent. God does not ask all men to behave, but to believe. We didn't even get to verse 17 tonight, for therein is the righteousness of God. That even speaks to salvation. It's his righteousness, justified from faith to faith, from beginning to the end, immeasurable, as a person places their faith and trust in Christ and the righteousness of Christ is credited their account that faith continues and it goes forward in its forever and it could even be a reference to individuals receiving Christ by faith and then as it is written a quote from I believe it's Habakkuk 2 and verse number 4 the just shall live by faith we live by faith we got saved by faith, sanctified by faith. We continue to live by faith. And that truth gripped the heart of a man by the name of Martin Luther. And he started the Protestant Reformation as he nailed those 95 theses to that door of the cathedral there at Wittenberg. And started a Reformation. And I know we are Protestants, or technically not even Protestants. We never came out of the Catholic Church. We believe that we are and always have been a part of God's true church, okay, as believers. Uh, we're not, I know we are lumped into the, the Protestants, but technically we're not even Protestants as Baptists. But however we want to describe that, we benefited from the Protestant Reformation and the declaration of that truth, that the just shall live by faith, and may we continue to live by faith. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for these truths as we live by faith, faith and trust in you and you alone. Lord, we will not be ashamed of the gospel. How can we, Lord, when you have saved us, when you have called us, when, Lord, you have given us the responsibility to share the good news with others? Lord, may we see the power of God at work in hearts and lives. Even this year, the year 2024, may we see souls saved. People, Lord, turn from their sin to faith in Christ. And Lord, help us to be burdened with the, the, the gospel as Paul was, ready to preach the gospel, ready to proclaim the gospel wherever, Lord, that you give us the opportunity. And may we be searching and seeking and praying for those opportunities. And Lord, help us not to be ashamed, but to be truly grateful for your great salvation provided through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we observe the Lord's table in just a few moments, Lord, may we once again be drawn near to the cross. And Lord, once again, be humble and truly grateful for your great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.